As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, you're listening to the Tom Fickler Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning and welcome to the Tom Ficklin Radio Show. I'm your guest host, Mark Rivard, and I am the Director of Multicultural Community Outreach for New England Donor Services. First of all, I would like to thank Tom Ficklin for allowing us to have this opportunity to speak about a very important topic that we're going to discuss today. Um, so this month actually is Multi-Ethnic Donation Awareness Month, and that's a focus on communities of color in regards to um, transplantation, of organ transplantation. This is something we don't like to talk about in our community sometimes, but we have some experts here today so that we can dispel some of those myths and just have a conversation and let people in our community know exactly what organ transplantation is about and the kind of work that we do all throughout the country. Um, I'm so happy with us to have today, Mark Tudor, who is the CEO of Aurora from Little Rock, Arkansas. Ingrid Palacio, Multicultural Outreach Program Manager from New England Donor Services, and Bobby Howard, Director of Multicultural Donation Education Program in Georgia. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, so we're just going to start. Um, Ingrid, if you could just give us some basic statistics, national statistics of how many people are actually waiting for organs um, and how many people like die per day because they do not have the opportunity to receive the gift of life. Yes, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Mark, for um, the invitation. Yes, like you say, there is around 106,000 women, men, and children that are in the waiting list in the United States where they're waiting for a uh, life-saving organ. Unfortunately, around 20 people die every day waiting for an organ that they never receive. Every 10 minutes, a patient is added to the waiting list in the United States. And something important to highlight, especially during this month, is that about 60% of the people in the waiting list have, are from communities of color or multi-ethnic communities like ours. Great, thank you. And you know what I wanna ask, because a lot of people do ask this question sometime, um, what exactly organs can be donated? You asking me or somebody else? No, I, I ask you, Angus, since you did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, the organs that can be donated are heart, the lungs, kidneys. The kidneys can go to two people. Um, liver, the liver can also be uh, segmented and go to two people uh, for transplantation, um, small intestine, and pancreas. Okay, great. From one person, I just want to add this, Mark, real quick. From one, only one donor, eight people, eight lives can be saved um, with these organs that I just mentioned. Right. And actually, I know um, there's also the possibility, possibility to do tissue donation, too. So even yes. more lives can also be saved with tissue donation. Up to 75 right. to, you know, the gift of corneas, the gift of um, skin, bone, um, um, 
tendons, blood vessels, and, and so on. So it's very, very important. Thank you for adding that because we only focus sometimes the conversation around organs without thinking how life-saving and life-transforming tissue donation can also be. Yeah, I had a friend who actually um, had breast cancer and she actually benefited from the tissue organs from um, reconstructive breast the surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. like New England donor services, two-thirds of the um, skin that we recover goes to um, patients that have double mastectomies that are survivors from um, breast cancer. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you, Ingrid. So Mark, I want to go to you now because actually you actually work in this field, but also you have a personal connection. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal connection story and then exactly what you do in your area? All right, thanks, Mark. I uh, appreciate the opportunity here. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Aurora. We cover all the hospitals in the state of Arkansas. Uh, we, we service about 2.5 million people. Uh, and I think it's great that National Multi-Ethnic Donor Awareness Month is coming to an end here, but we were able to get out in our communities and do a, a lot of education about donation and transplant. But one of the things we also want to talk about is, is prevention. You know, the majority of the people on the waiting list are, are multi-ethnic, and it's just the ability and the disparities in healthcare, getting treatment, getting that prevention to keep these people off of the waiting list, because, you know, that's where we need to make big changes in our communities, get that education out so we can get people not listed and get people healthy so they don't need transplants. Go see your physicians. You know, the prevalence of diabetes and hypertension in our community is, is prevalent, and we need to control that so we can keep those people off the list. Um, but when all else fails, then, then there's transplant and donation, and that's what we do. Um, I've been doing this job for about 25 years. I never thought that, you know, my story would be affected by donation transplant. I just worked in the industry, but four years ago, I lost my daughter following a, a complex surgery. Um, she was 22 years old, extremely healthy, um, and she ended up donating her heart, her lungs, her liver, and her kidneys. She was also uh, an eye and, and tissue donor, and she also donated her hair as well. Um, and, and through that, we've actually met uh, four other recipients, and it's, it's a real blessing to me because her lung recipient is an African-American female in Cleveland. Uh, one kidney recipient, uh, Florinda, she is a Filipino woman. Uh, George is uh, from the Middle East. Uh, so we actually had an opportunity to meet them and every single person who received one of her organs was from a different ethnic group. And to me, that's very special because that's what we try to do, help people in our communities. My daughter was able to help out so many people with so many different nationalities. You know, it was just a real testament to how God works in my eyes that, you know, I've been doing this for so long and preaching this. And then we were able to help out uh, the people that we serve. And, you know, it was very special to me. Uh, and with tissue donation, you know, they say the average is about 75 people could be saved, but my daughter had over 600 segments of bone and tissue distributed. Um, and, and it's really neat because you can get follow-up on those recipients. Every so often I'll get a letter talking about um, what transplants were done in the ages of those people who got it. And she's restored sight in two people, one actually in the state of Georgia where Bobby's from and one in the country of Georgia. So I found it really neat that, you know, she's international and she's going all over the world helping people. And uh, she's actually uh, had six knee surgeries done with, with her tendons and ligaments in her knees and, and had people walk again. And, and to me, you know, if, if I had to lose my daughter, and uh, there's no better way to honor her than to celebrate the successes of transplant and helping people in our communities. 
Right. Thank you, Mark. And um, we thank you, your family and your daughter actually for giving the gift of life to so many people. And I'm so glad you mentioned the ethnicities of the people, because I think a lot of times people think that only certain, um, you know, um, backgrounds receive it or, you know, I have to I'm a black man, so I need to give my organ to another black person and things like that. But it doesn't work that way. It's a multi-ethnic um, process, given the gift of life. And um, and it's great that you had the opportunity to meet some of your um your your daughter's um donor donor recipients and I'm sure that was like really very heart heartfelt time and things. Now do you actually keep in touch with some of them or yeah we're we're all Facebook friends. On the first year of the anniversary we got together on my daughter's day of death, which is uh the day that they received life again and had a memorial like a celebration and, and spent time together. Um, since I've moved to Arkansas, uh, Amy Bradley, the lung recipient, she's actually going to spend her summer vacation down here next year. So we're planning a trip to get together. So we're still really, really good friends. Um, it's really, it's, it's amazing when you meet these recipients and, you know, I, I thought I had a big family before, but I really have an extended family now. And, and it's, it's taught me a lot about people, cultures, individuals. Um, yeah, my family has definitely grown. I consider them part of my family and we stay in touch quite a bit. That's great, and a great way to honor your daughter's legacy also. That's yeah. really great. Mr. Bobby Howard, how are you today? I am wonderful for a Monday. Good, Good. for a Monday, right? <laughs> so, um, Bobby, can you exactly tell us what your position is and how long you've been involved with organ and tissue donation? And also, you have a personal story, too, as a recipient, so can you share that with us? Sure. Um, um, my role in Georgia is to educate all the communities of color and to make sure that we are disseminating the correct information and to allow people to make an informed decision on organ, eye, and tissue donation. I've been doing this now for almost 28 years that I've been involved um, in this field. And I do have a personal story. I am a kidney recipient. Uh, October 25th will make 28 years that I've received and had my kidney transplant. Um, after playing professional football, I was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease and started dialysis. And, you know, being in, uh, blessful for me, I was only on dialysis a little over eight months. And, you know, some folks wait a very long time. So I was very blessed and fortunate to only be on dialysis for a little, you know, a little over eight months. And uh, it's truly been a blessing in the sense that not only was I able to extend my life, but in doing this work, I've been able to touch and reach so many people to explain the importance of life and the importance of giving life. I think sometimes we only think of giving life as through birth, but we don't realize on the whole is that when our life is over, we can extend life to those of others or people that we do not know. And that's the whole mission of, I think, what we all are trying to accomplish is to make sure that we empower people to make an informed decision that can benefit those that they may not ever have the opportunity to meet. Great. Thanks, Bob. Now, I have a question, too, for you, Bobby. Um, you were a kidney recipient, and I know with kidneys, um, you could be either um, a deceased donor or a living donor. Which one was your um, person who gave you your kidney? Uh, I'm, I'm, I have a deceased donor, and, okay. you, know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting story is, is that, you know, I was the fourth person that they called for the kidney that I have. You know, the first person never returned their call. The second person was on a cruise and he couldn't get back in time. And the third person was actually in the hospital, but she had some other complications that would have, um, they didn't think she would 
you know, last throughout the surgery. And she thought, said, well, don't fix me, give it to the next person. So, you know, in that sense, it was truly a blessing that, you know, when someone whose life could have possibly been saved, she thought of others. So it's truly, truly a blessing that I am here today because who knows if I would not have gotten that kidney when I've gotten one at all. And that's the, you know, the, the, the risk that so many people have. And, you know, I think this conversation today is, is very important. And it's always, it's what we do on a daily basis. And to get this information out there on this platform is truly wonderful. We don't get this opportunity that often. So when we do have it, you know, we really have to take advantage of it. And I'm just so thankful that you invited all of us to be on this call today. And I'm glad you all accepted the invitation. Now, something I, I know for a fact that in communities of color, kidneys are needed the most. And uh, Mark, you brought up a great subject that diet and things we should do beforehand. So what are some things, are any of the OPOs um, having any type of programs also to kind of inform persons in the community about, you know, this is the kind of diet you need to have, um, the exercise and things like that. Um, any of you can jump in at any time to answer that question. Well, um, I, I know, you know, here in Georgia, that's one of the things that we kind of looked at maybe about 10 years ago is that we realized we were running into roadblocks and we always wanted to talk about donation. So we had to flip the script and start talking about healthy living, things that people can truly understand. Now, we're not the experts in it. We can only give suggestions and, and you know, hopefully invite some people who do that out with us in the community. But flipping that script and talking about the health, I think everyone right now, everyone wants to be in good shape and eat properly and all those things. So in, in flipping the script and talking about um, diet and exercising, then easing on into the donation conversation has really been helpful and beneficial, you know, here in Georgia, because I think donations, some, most people think that it's about death and it's not about death. You know, we like to say it's about life. You're giving life because the reality to life for all of us is death that, you know, we're born to die and that's the reality. And, you know, having people to understand and, and to share that message and we all know it, but, I think we believe that we're in in uh, uh, immortal, immortal, and that we won't have that. Yeah. And you know, as you talk about it and you discuss it, especially in uh, you know the, the the communities of color, you know, you have to deal with religious beliefs and and a whole lot of things. You, you know, mistrust of healthcare, all those things play a factor as we go out into the community and educate. But it's vitally important that we also talk about good, healthy living as well. Yeah, great. And you brought up some great points because we're going to talk later about those myths, some of them that you mentioned, because um, I know in the community, we hear a lot about those, especially the religion and different things. They're not going to save my life. And we're going to, you know, talk about that later on. But Ingrid, I want to go back to you because I know you deal a lot with the um, Latina community. And, um, you know, so tell us about that population in regards to organ and tissue donation. And a question that came up also, maybe you can talk about it. If you have a person who's undocumented and they really want to be a, an organ and tissue donor. So um, give your perspective on that whole scenario. Of course. And thank you, uh, Mark and Bobby for sharing your, your personal connection with donation. It is always, I think I heard it several times before but every time it's just so inspiring and it really 
give us, you know, it warms my heart to see you both um, sharing your story in such a such a positive light and what that has brought to you guys. So thank you for doing that. And talking about the Latino community, I'm very proud to um, represent my community working with donation and transplantation. I have worked um, not as long as Bobby and Mark. I've been only 12 years working with donation and transplantation. We do um, where I develop programs that are not only culturally sensitive, but also linguistically appropriate to um, work and educate and inform my community, um, my Latino community about 75 5% of the Latino community in the United States um, speak uh, another language other than English at their homes. So that is important for us to know when developing these programs and have everything available in both languages to really reach um, and, and spread our message. So at this point, we are the largest um, ethnic group living in this country. We are like 19%, 72%. 0.1 million Latinos living in the United States um, as per the last census and, and growing. And so it is important for my community to be informed. Um, I worked before um, as a family services coordinator in the field and working in the hospital setting. I learned a lot about um, the, the, my culture and relation with donation. So that had, had helped me to develop the programs that we are developing um, to help inform in an appropriate manner and connect with our community in an honest, transparent, in a way that we are um, taking into consideration those misbeliefs and those misconceptions that we're going to be speaking about later, like you mentioned, Mark. Um, 20, I think almost 25% of the waiting list uh, the people in the waiting list are Latinos. And um, my Latinos, I am so um, very proud when I talk about this because I know we're not, we might not be in the top of the list when it comes to be donors. Um, but I think it does lack of information more than anything and the misconceptions that we bring from our um, countries. And so, but I always say when, when I, you know, talk about donation and the perception that um, we have in the Latino community that we might not have and might not come from our countries with the culture of donation, but we do have the culture of solidarity. We do have the culture of compassion and to help. And once we are able to have and access that information about organ donation that can touch so many lives like Mark's daughter or like Bobby's, um, that's when we um, most of the time say yes, yes to, to save lives, say yes for our loved ones to leave the legacy of life, say yes to um, continue um, um, spreading the message uh, and saying yes about donation. And then talking about the undocumented community, uh, undocumented population, uh, there is over um, 100 million um, people that are being, um, that are undocumented um, in the United States. And, there's several studies that say it's double that number, but those are the, the, the people counted. Undocumented people can be organ donors. We have had um, several in, in different regions of the, in all regions, I think, of the United States that have said yes to donation. However, 
because in not every state um, we can register or the undocumented people can register um, or to have uh, a driver license. So no, all of them are registered. However, efforts have been made for um, the national registry to not require or to add another verification factor of, of uh, identity that is not the social security number. So that has facilitated for undocumented people that want to become and uh, be registered donors to register, uh, be online. And not everybody knows this. A lot of people think that they have to have a driver license or, or a, an ID um, where they can say yes to donation. That's a way. However, because not every state give license to uh, the undocumented population, People can register online in uh, registerme.org and um, regardless of their legal status. Yeah, great, Ingrid. And I, that's why I wanted to bring that up because I know I've been out in the community and there have been persons who said, I don't have um, a driver's license and things yeah. like that. But they do want to, you know, offer the gift of life and, you know, be a part of doing and helping someone else. Now, um, I know Mark and Bob, you guys have been in this for over 20 some odd years, Ingrid almost 12 years. So I guess I'm like the newbie to this. It's been eight years. But <laughs> being out in the community, I find that a big part of getting people involved in communities of color and different ethnicities is trust. And I think that's a big factor in the community. And I think especially in the African-American community, there have been so many um, medical experiments and things. They always talk about the Tuskegee experiment, experiment on um, the Henrietta Lacks situation and those type of things. People are like, nah, I'm not doing it. You know. So what are some ways that we can build the trust in the community to let people know that this is something they really should do to help others and that you know we're there to help you through the long haul of the whole process. So let's talk about trust and how can we build that trust with our community and community partners. You know, Mark, I, I work primarily in the clinical side, so I see the people when they're in the hospital and that that end of it. And one of the things that I do or we teach our staff to do is when we work with somebody uh, with a multi-ethnic background is to remind them that when you donate, you can directly donate to a person. And I think if, if they people understand that and know that, say, go back to your church, people in your community. You know, if you know somebody who's waiting for a kidney transplant or a liver transplant, we can directly give that kidney to that person. So you want to help out people in your community, help them out. Find people in your community. Put it on Facebook. Find somebody you know. Find somebody you know who knows somebody who's waiting for a kidney transplant. Because the system is a blinded system. But if you know somebody, you can directly give it to that individual. We recently had a case where we had an undocumented uh, Latino person in our area, and they wanted to directly donate it to their loved one who was back in Mexico. So we had to go through the Mexican consulate and get, the, get a hold of the transplant center in Mexico to try to arrange for this to happen. Uh, it came out that that person wasn't officially listed and couldn't receive the transplant. But those are the type of efforts that we go to to make sure that we try to make those families' needs and wishes come true for them. And I think that was a big part of building trust in a lot of these families to say, look, let me help someone that looks like you. Let me find people. You find people. Let's keep it in our community. And, I, and that brings a lot of trust back to, the, to some people. Right. And, and I think, Mark, uh, uh, I shouldn't say I think. Another way that we have to meet communities where they are. I think so often is that anytime someone wants something from a community, they just go in and take what they want and they don't come back. And so meeting communities where they are is that getting involved in 
and initiatives and activities in those communities that doesn't have anything to do with donation or transplantation or health, for example, it may be, you know, a, a day where you're, you're feeding the community. We can go and volunteer and work and help feed the community. We can do other things like, you know, going into school, reading books to the children. All those things start building trust where you have to be a staple and a part of the community of the community, not just coming in and saying, okay, we need your organs and we're going to do this and do that. And then we never come back. So I think in building trust, we have to be a staple in the community, but also meet the communities where they are. Be giving back, like we do in New England Donor Services, Mark, as you know, we have the Social um, Equity Steering Committee. Mm -hmm. And through that, we do a lot of work uh, also with your leadership in the community, like Bobby was mentioning those type of programs. And that is very important for us because it's also giving us that connection and it helps us learn about the needs of our communities, not only you know, like what we say, go and take and ask for things, but actually be there, support their needs, learn from their needs, and develop programs that are really going to uh, impact, make an impact. And I want to like uh, piggyback of what Marv was saying in the clinical setting. I say I work with the families in the hospital setting for eight years, and it's so important for the families to know that this donation, uh, at least the, the donate, well, the whole piece, donation uh, procurement and, and transplantation is a family-driven process, at least from the side of, of, the, of the procurement or the recovery. And we try to accommodate, like Mark mentioned, all those needs of the family um, from the, uh, and help them to have access to the best service helping them and being that liaison or being that support to overcome barriers such as could be the language barrier, the, the um, um, using, interpre using interpreters in the hospital setting to help overcome that, the cultural barriers or even the, the um, religious needs. Uh, religious, different religious rituals and, and so on. So when families see that transparency, when families see that we are there to let them drive this process, to help us and guide us in how to better serve them, I think that's when we are able to develop trust, at least in that setting. Right. And, and you all said something very important. And I think, Bobby, you said we have to meet the community where they're at. So there's different types of events and things that we need to go to where we may even have never thought of talking about donation and things at those events. But um, like Ingrid said, like New England Donor Services, we have been doing a lot in the community, like the food drives, toy drives. Um, when COVID was very high, we did... Um, community events where we helped with the testing and things like that and at COVID sites and you know people saw us out there and like you said it wasn't like we're just asking like hey come on register to become an organ and tissue donor but we want to help and be seen in the community to do some positive outreach in the community definitely um we talked a lot you guys have talked a lot about different myths and misconceptions in um your talks also and there are a lot of myths so I want to address this myth. This is the first myth I always get. Um, I'm not going to say yes or put a heart on my license because if I'm in an accident or something happens, they are not going to save my life. They're going to see I'm an organ donor. They're going to take me straight, retrieve my organs and give them to someone else. So what is your take on that? I think it's important for people to know that in every state, there's what's called an organ procurement organization, like New England Organ Donor Services, like Aurora, 
um, who, who are associated. We work at the hospitals, but we don't work for the hospitals. And we're the people that make donation happen. So the hospital's job is to help save your life and, and do what they can uh, to make sure that you uh, survive your injuries. But after they've deemed it um, unsurvivable, that's when we come in and we approach the family. We're the donation people. They can't take your organs out for transplant. They're not transplant programs. They're not transplant surgeons, recovery surgeons. They have no way to place the organs. That's all done through our organization. And we, we are totally independent. We're nonprofit organizations outside of the hospital, um, completely independent. A lot of people don't, don't realize that. It's really sensationalized on TV when you see something like that happen on ER where they recover a kidney in the, in the emergency room and transplant somebody. I mean, that just doesn't happen. I mean, it's all run by the government. There's lists, there's checks and balances, and we all work outside of that hospital realm. I want to add to that that um, becoming an organ donor is a very unique uh, um, thing to happen. Only like 3%, I think it is, 3 or 4% of people that die, die in circumstances that allow for organ donation to happen. And also not everyone that... Um, dies um, will have suitable organs or eligible organs or will be even eligible to be an organ donor. So really how I see it, and I might be biased, of course, I see donation as a very unique opportunity and very unique blessing. It's not, not everyone that wants, even people that are registered can be organ donors. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah, Mark, I think in the state of Arkansas, we had 13,000 deaths occur last year at a hospital mm -hmm. setting and only 150 of them became organ donors. So mm -hmm. it is, you know, less than 1% of yeah. every death. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, you have, it's such a rare opportunity to sit in front of a family and offer this gift. That's why it's so important to, to promote this because the opportunities are so small for us. Yeah. And, and, and Mark also, um, we have to be transparent and, and recognize and, and acknowledge because when you talk about the fear that people have, it's the fear of healthcare. And I know being here in the South, when we had the Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks, you know, that's a big fear with us being here in Atlanta, only a couple hundred miles away from Tuskegee where all that took place. So being transparent and acknowledging that those things did happen, but that was 60, 70 years ago. And we're, look at where we are today. And, you know, so in acknowledging and saying and saying that, you know, it's true that happened, but this is where we are today. This is what healthcare is about. There's been things that put in place that protects you as an individual and as a human being that, you know, no, uh, every healthcare professional is going to try to do all they can to save your life before we're even involved in any call or anything about talking with you about organized tissue donation. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And um, that's a good point because, um, and I'm glad we're having this discussion because education is very important. And um, a lot of people don't know that, you know, when their loved one is at the hospital, whether they're registered or not, someone's going to approach your family about this. And if you have some knowledge about what's going on before that time comes, kind of makes the process a little easier. You know, you don't want someone coming to you asking, you know, would you like your loved one to give the gift of life and they know nothing about it. And, you know, it's a very vulnerable moment for them to, to have that type of discussion. All right, another myth I hear, and I don't know about you guys, a lot in the community. Oh, I cannot donate because um, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Jehovah's Witness, I'm Seventh-day Adventist, I'm Catholic. My religion will not let me do that. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, um, <laughs> I like to just change the word and instead of myth. I think it's a belief because every belief, you know, people's belief is their belief. And, you know, it's a thing of pointing out the right ways. And, and we know that all major religions support organized teaching. We know that. Mm-hmm. But it's very important for us to work with our religious leaders in the community and, and continue to uh, have them support what we do and point out things and have them share with us, you know, in their teachings, does it say anything negative about donation? And so when we share that with them and work with them, they can import, I mean, give that information to their congregation because it's very difficult. And, and once again, being here in the Bible Belt, that is something that, you know, is very strong of, of people's religious belief. So I've changed the word from a myth to belief because that's someone's belief. And then trying to work with them and have them understand. And one of the things that I do when I teach my staff to do, have them show us or tell us what in their belief tells them they can't donate. And just instead of saying my religion doesn't support it, because what we find is people don't, they don't know. And so, you you know, so your easy answer, and I know when I was growing up and in, in especially here in the South, you're taught not to question anybody's religious beliefs or what they feel about their religion. So that's a, a very slippery and uh, a, a step to go, a slope to go down. So working with our religious leaders and, and folks in the community and to get them to be uh, another voice for us within their congregation, to have them invite us in and so we can spread the, the true facts. And then and when we get those religious leaders on our side, they can be our, our, our voice to be able to answer that question more directly than what we You know, Mark, I think on a national level, uh, we saw the importance of getting out in the community to our religious leaders. And they started what's called National Donor Sabbath, which is two weekends before Thanksgiving, where they actually have a three-day observance uh, to go out to talk to ministries, uh, get some information about organ donation, and actually do some some talks on the organ donation in the churches. So nationally, we've recognized that they put a, a whole weekend together where we promote it through the religious avenues that we have in our in our communities. Um, I also want to add to that, Mark, like in the hospital setting, one of the things that we do to be very respectful to those, and I love how Bobby worded those beliefs, because it truly is a belief and it's a very deep one and a very valid one and and very respected one. So to be respectful, but also um, support and be proactive, what we do is also one of the practices, at least when I work in ESOPO, was to bring um, faith leaders or their own community leaders or their own faith uh, religious leaders to the hospital to talk to the family about donation, just to be very respectful and not to contradict beliefs or not coming from us, but actually involve their leaders in the decision just to guide them. And I would say nine or every time that that happened, and that's also about building trust and, and letting the family know that they are driving this process and that's going to be included. And we are respectful. These leaders are able to come and guide the family into making the best decision for themselves. Um, so um, another thing that I wanted to add as a Catholic is that, like and also Bobby mentioned, not everybody knows this. We know this because this is the work that we do. This is our field. But Pope Francis is one of the biggest um, supporters of organ donation and consider it the biggest gift uh, of love that you can give to your neighbor. 
And so those are things that we need to continue taking the stigma out of these conversations, getting comfortable and transparent and adding um, in every setting, not only in the community, but also at the hospital level, adding um, these religious leaders and these faith leaders to guide um, families' decisions. Yeah, thank you. And I want to add too, I, I found that if you go to a church, synagogue, or what have you, and you find people there who are either waiting or have given the gift of life, they're the perfect person to give testimonials. Um, I had an experience where an imam's wife was waiting for a kidney, and he's been such a great supporter to about organ and tissue donation because there's a lot of um, you know, disbeliefs about you know the Muslims and things like that. And also, um, there was a Pentecostal preacher who his family donated his organs when he passed away and the wife was a tissue donation. So having their family speak at different functions and like during donor Sabbath has been a great help in promoting um, organ and tissue donation in the religious community. Uh, another Mark, if, before, before you move forward, Mark, yeah. um, just on that note of, of what you stated is that there's also a lot of religious leaders who themselves are on waiting lists and who are right. on waiting lists uh -huh. themselves. And so, the importance of seeking seeking those members out because you find that even a lot of religious leaders are not aware of donation and how it actually works. So we're actually educating them to help educate their congregation and their followers. Yeah. So it, it, it's a it's a it's a big process and a big step. But I do find like you have found once you start talking, everything opens up because that's the oh yeah. I have my aunts on Dallas. They'll start telling you all their family that they have people in their family that are on Dallas, but they still haven't been educated themselves. So it's it's um there's so many ways of, of going about and working with people, and it's all about trust. And as you as we talked about earlier, it's all about trust, especially in the community. And I think what we're what we really like to do, as as Mark uh, Tudor stated. If we can get the more families prepared before they get to the hospital, that makes that conversation a lot easier. And that's what we truly want because it's really not about us, it's about the families that we serve. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add real quick that uh, we have an amazing priest in our area that uh, Father Suin Mark, mm -hmm. that's um, a um, heart transplant uh, recipient. And so we have had the honor to do celebrate a donor Sabbath with him when he was having his first year uh, heartversary, as as he called it. And so it was very, very touching. We brought the community and it was a really, really nice exchange of, you know, knowledge, information, love and, and celebration of life. So I just remember that as how important um, this is also touching our, our community leaders. Yeah, we could go. Oh, Mark Tudor, did you want to say something? I just want to say that, you know, being in healthcare as long as Bobby and I have, I'm sure you've seen, you know, 25, 30 years ago, the number of Caucasian doctors compared to minority doctors. And when you talk about trust, it's having a diverse healthcare team. And I think now when you walk into a hospital and you see people who look like us and who act like us and have the same religion like us, then you understand. And then you get that's I think that helps build trust, too, is, is having physicians, having doctors and nurses that look like the people of our community. And that's that's gone a long way in the last five to 10 years. Yeah, and, and I'm just to add, not only the hospital, when we do community events, depending on the demographics of that event, 
we want to bring a person who has experienced donation to speak of the same demographics of that event. And that helps a lot also too. I'm going to do one more myth because there's some other things I want to um, talk about before we are off the air. Um, this is a big one too. A lot of people talk about that um, status and fame is how you get an organ and tissue donation. And you know, you read in the, the news like this star received an organ they were waiting for, you know, three weeks or something like that. You know, so what what what's the process as far as getting um an organ if you're on the waiting list and that myth that you know only the rich and famous get them first. Anyone? Well, I'll throw out one. I mean, you know, Bobby's an ex-NFL player. And I, the one I always comes back to me is, is Walter Payton was waiting for a liver transplant and never received one and died waiting for a liver transplant. And I can't think of anybody more rich and more famous than Walter Payton. Mm -hmm. And I think, Mark, too, when, I think when people hear that, I always use of, of, of people with money have more access. You know, it's almost I compare things to the Super Bowl. I think everyone would love to have the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, but sometimes our finances doesn't allow us to go to the Super Bowl. But I think when you look at this transplant, this donation and transplant world that we're in, people who have money, it affords them to do things. And what I mean by that is that you can have money and you can get a private plane to fly from Atlanta to, to Arkansas, where a regular person doesn't have access to do that. So when, when, when you do your resources and all those things, and, and this country allows you to be multiple listed in different states. And so if you're listed in your home state, then you find another state who have a shorter list and you have that, it gives you access. So those who are famous, that's what they have access. But I will say this, if it doesn't match your blood type and it's not a match for you, it doesn't matter if you list it everywhere because you're not gonna get it. And I think that's the point that everyone doesn't see. It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, when people say, well, it's a waiting list. I look at it as a pool of names. And it's a pool of names. It's not a waiting list because it's not Mark Tudor and Bobby Howard and Mark Lavard and Ingrid. We're in a pool. And we all have different blood types, body types, genes, all those things. And then sometimes a kidney may pop up and Mark Tudor and Mark Lavard may have been waiting 10 years and Bobby Howard just pops in and the kidney's his because my makeup is totally different than theirs. So there's a lot of different things. That, and sometimes it's difficult to explain to the normal person of how that whole process works because you keep hearing the waiting list, waiting list, waiting list, waiting list, waiting list. And that when you say a list, that says to me, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> you know, right. say anything differently. And, and I think when you do have access to money and, and, and the biggest you know, Walter Payton and Mark Tudor just brought up, he needed a, a, a liver transplant, he never received it. I have several guys here in Atlanta um, who were on the waiting list and they passed away who played football as well. They never received their transplants either. Mm -hmm. And they had some dollars in their pockets and they never received transplant. I think if you look all over it, I think because they were athletes or movie stars or had a lot of money, that's what the media draws attention to. Each and every day, people are receiving transplants who aren't famous. We just don't know because that's not the media story. Great. Yeah, great point on that. Thank you so much, Bobby. I want to move to the next thing because our time is getting ready to run out. 
So there's an organization called AMAT, which is the Association for Multicultural Affairs and Transplantation. Um, can Bobby, can you give us a little bit of how that was formed and why that organization was formed? Sure. Um, about 30 years ago, um, AMAT, um, Association for Multicultural Affairs, at that time it wasn't that, it was a different name. But um, they started, it was a group of people of color who got together and wanted to start an organization because of 30 years ago, there was really not an organization that uh, they felt comfortable with, that they received a lot of information and couldn't talk about things that they wanted to talk about that directly affected uh, the people, the community of, of colors. So um, several guys got together and, and they were in St. Louis and, and they had a meeting and, and they'd start, they wanted to start this organization. And since then, the organization has grown to where it is today, where each year we have an annual conference. And this year, it's in um, you and Ingrid's home state of Connecticut. I mean, we thank you guys for so graciously hosting it. And now we have about close to 100 members that are part of the organization. We're always seeking more. And we go over different um, subject matters that particularly affect the, the, the communities of color, but not only in the community, we also talk about from the clinical point of, point, of, uh, point of view, talk about the tissue side, we talk about the hospital side. We try to cover all the bases as it, as it uh, relates to the whole donation process and what can we do to improve on what we're already doing. So um, um, we're very excited and, and, and matter of fact, we have Mark Tudor, who is our current president and who's doing just a wonderful job. And I know that under his leadership, the organization is gonna to continue to grow. And we're just so excited about everything that we're doing, things that we have planned for the future, and just taking this on head on as an organization to address the needs of, of the communities of color. Great. Just so you know, we have about six six to eight minutes left, but I just want to talk about AMAT again. And Mark Tudor, yes, Mark Tudor is the president of AMAT this year. Is there anything you want to say about AMAT, Mark? You know, one of the things we also do is put on uh, monthly webinars. You know, we have some focus work groups on the African American, Latino X, Asian Pacific Islander, Native American work groups. And we put out webinars to help. You know, we talk about things like organ donation, but we spend a lot of time talking about our communities and teaching people about our culture and what, what we believe in and why we react to healthcare in this way and that way, because not everybody knows what each culture has gone through. I think Ingrid, the Latino work group is working on uh, Cafecita, where we have conversations about donation. And I think the next one's on, on food. So we're spending a whole hour talking about food and diet and how to stay healthy and, and, and preventative ways you know, to, to be just overall. And I think that's kind of like what we're trying to do is just be open, honest, transparent, uh, listen, and let people be heard, uh, talk about their, their, their upbringings and how that affected them. And, you know, it's, it's amazing when you, see, when you listen to other cultures and what they've been through and trying to look at it through their lenses. And I think that's what AVAT does. We provide that type of education for everybody in our community. And it just helps us become, you know, more accepting, more diverse, more inclusive. Right, great. And I just want to say, uh, Bobby, like you said, um, New England Donor Services, we are very honored to host the 30th anniversary of AMAC conference here. And um, we've really been pushing it all throughout New England and all throughout 
the country actually, for people to come to New England and um, be a part of the AMAC conference. And with that being said, Ingrid, why don't you tell a little bit about the conference we're getting ready to have in Hartford, what to expect, how people can register, because it's open to everyone, because we have some phenomenal speakers. And I'm sure there is a topic that will apply to you in some way. Um, so Ingrid, why don't you tell us a little bit about the conference and how people can register for the conference? Yes, so the conference this year is going to be in October, from October 4th to the 7th. So we have developed um, uh, an amazing program that is uh, um, focused on social equity and having access to transplantation and donation and diversity and everything multicultural, like Bobby mentioned in several um uh, parts of our field, like hospital development, family services and aftercare, public education, tissue, uh, clinical and research, leadership. We are very, very excited to see our AMAT family again in person. Um, all multi uh, multicultural professionals, professionals of color that work very hard uh, in, national, in the national level and in the regions to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field of donation and transplantation. So people can register uh, through the AMAT website, amat1.org. Um, and we are gonna be, the registrations are gonna be open until the end of this month, right, Mark? For, yes. But then for the special rate discount for the hotel, it's at the, like the middle of the month. So if you're interested in coming and joining us in Hartford, Connecticut, I think this is a good time to, to think about registration, right? So you can get that special rate and we get to, to know you were gonna have amazing testimonies, what we call Connect to Purposes, just like um, Mark and, and Bobby shared with us today that can also give you a, a perspective of what our communities, um, the connection, the, the very special connection that we have with organ donation and transplantation. So we welcome, like Mark Rebar mentioned, everyone. This is uh, mainly for professionals in the healthcare system, for professionals of donation and transplantation, and people that want to learn about our field. We welcome everyone. Thank you. <laughs> and what we're going to do actually too, um, we'll have that website um, in on the Tom Ficklin um, website so that you can get that information. And um, we just hope everyone could come out. It's going to be a really great time, a very informative time. And we'll look forward to seeing you all. And one other thing we'll put also on that website is how do I register to be an organ donor at www.registerme.org. So we'll have that information and we'll also have information um, for myself, Ingrid, and even Mark and Bob, if you had some questions that you would like for us to answer, we'll be glad to answer those questions. If you're in the New England area, um, Mark, myself, actually, Mark, me, and Ingrid, we will, I see Mark Tudor up there, I'm like, you know. <laughs> Um, Mark Brevard and Ingrid, I will be glad to come out and um, we have a team of persons who can do community education. And even if you're listening somewhere else in the area where Mark is or Bobby, um, I'm sure we could reach out to them and get people to come out to discuss more and educate on, um, on um, outreach in the community. Um, so lastly, if each one of you can give one thought about organ and tissue donation, something important that you think the people in our communities really need to hear. Let's start with you, Ingrid. 
I will always, like I ask everyone, do not, if you feel in your heart that you want to be an organ donor when you don't need your organs anymore, don't rule yourself out. A lot of people think that they're too old or they have a disease or they have an illness that will prevent them. They don't really know, so they don't register or they remove themselves from the from the um, um national registry so now i'm always telling them let the specialists to make that decision for you when the time comes and if you have it in your heart to be an organ donor register and mainly share that decision with your family and loved ones so they know what to do they know that's your decision that's what you want to do you want to save lives uh, when you don't need your organs anymore so as you mentioned mark it's takes 38 seconds to register um, in the in the in online in registerme.org people can also use their iPhones and people that have iPhones they can register in the health app and it also takes few seconds to register and just making that decision you can save so many lives so that is my, my message thank you for listening to us today and like you say mark we're always available to do um any presentations any information in any way that we can support our communities will be there thank you and they're telling me we have two minutes so mark you get um a half a minute bobby you get a half a minute and i'll take the last minute I just think that uh, if people are aware, like in my situation, I had a huge mistrust in the medical industry because of what happened to my daughter. But I put that aside. I donated. And, and the legacy that she has and the hero that she became saving more people's lives, it's, it's, it heals me today, four years later, knowing what she did and seeing the lives that she saved. And I think people, if they could see that part of donation and transplant, it's something truly special. Thank you, Bobby. As a 28-year kidney recipient, I am so honored and thankful that someone thought enough of me to give me a second chance at life. So if we share today any positive information or anything that, that you like, I'll just remind you, if we sit by and do absolutely nothing, zero lives will be saved. So please consider becoming an organized tissue donor today. Thank you. This has been a very informative and educational program. I thank Mark. Ingrid and Bobby for being a part. I appreciate you all. Thank you, Tom, for giving us this platform to discuss organ and tissue donation. And closing, I would just say, look to the website to see the um, different um, sites that you can go on to register for AMAT and to be a donor. And just remember, giving the gift of life is helping someone else. Everyone have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah.